you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be a red pew Bible in front of you or under the pew there for you. And it's on page 848. So if you don't have a Bible, the red pew Bible, page 848. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament, right there after Matthew and right before Luke. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And we will be looking at verses 1 through 34 this morning, talking about the cornerstone of true religion. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 34, talking about the cornerstone of true religion. Imagine with me just for a moment as we think about the importance of the concept of a cornerstone. If you are a construction person, which I, I'm not, so, uh, but, but even the most simple-minded person in construction I can hopefully understand the importance of the cornerstone. I can remember uh, when I lived in West Africa that uh, the village I lived in, I had moved there and was living there for a month or so before uh, they built my house. And uh, the, the man that was in charge of building my house had spent a lot of time in preparation before they actually started the building in, in lining up and making sure the, the first corner of the house was lined up and correct and they were good bricks that he was using. Because as you, as you think about when you lay the first cornerstone, if it's crooked or if it's off, as the walls go along and as they build, they're not going to be able to make a, a perfect square or a perfect triangle. In fact, they're going to be going in the wrong direction. It's going to mess up the whole house. So if you mess up with the cornerstone, uh, then the whole entire house will be messed up. So it doesn't matter how nice a wall may look or how uh, straight a certain wall may look. If the straightness is going in the wrong direction... Uh, then it's meaningless and it's useless. So on first uh, look, it may look and appear that it's a good wall. But if it's crooked because of the cornerstone, because of a faulty cornerstone, then it proves to be no benefit at all. So this morning, that's a little bit of what we're talking about uh, as we see Jesus talking about this cornerstone. And we're going to look at this passage that is broken up into four different sections. So the first section is where Jesus actually gives this parable about the cornerstone. And then the next three sections are these questions that Jesus receives from those who are listening. And so the hope is, is that we look at this parable and as we look at these questions that we are challenged and encouraged and hopefully uh, uh, convicted to make sure that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. Because if it's not, these walls that we put up that are other aspects of maybe what a Christian life would be like are somewhat meaningless without Jesus being the cornerstone. So let's look at our passage this morning. The first uh, to 12 verses I'll just briefly summarize for you, but this is a parable that Jesus is telling to the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, where he gives this parable and he says that there was a vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard made this vineyard, he planted it, he had a wine press, and he gave it over to the responsibility of these other tenants. And he goes off. Well, he's off from a far country and he sends uh, some representatives of him back to this vineyard to reap some of the harvest, to take some of the fruit back to him. Well, the tenants beat uh, the, this person that the owner sends. And so he sends someone else and he, they beat him or they, they keep beating them or, or killing them. So the, wine, uh, the vineyard owner says, well, surely if I send my son, they won't harm him. But in fact, when the owner does send the son, the tenants kill him. And they say, if we kill the son, then the vineyard will be ours. It will be ours for our inheritance. 
And then Jesus ends this parable in verse 10 by saying, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is comparing Himself and the work of the Father and the kingdom to this parable that He tells of saying that God has sent His prophets before and the leaders of Israel have continually rejected Him. So finally God is sending His very own Son with the assumption of being surely the Son of the owner will not be rejected. But yet here Jesus is foreshadowing the coming death of saying not only will they reject the Son, but they will kill the Son. And in killing Him, they are rejecting the cornerstone. So it's not an insignificant thing. So they are rejecting the cornerstone, the very stone that God will use to build His kingdom. So with that in mind, let's look at these next three sections. So immediately following that, Jesus gets a question from some of the Pharisees. And let's read verses 13 through 17 here. And they said, and they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to him, said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now the first point here that we're going to see in this passage is that political affiliation is not the cornerstone of true religion. Political affiliation is not the cornerstone of true religion. So let's look at this passage for a second and then try to unpack its significance for us today. What happened here at this time is, is that Jerusalem was not able to rule itself. It was under Roman rule. And so there was a tax that was required of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. And this was a hotly debated issue. Should we, as Jewish people who, who are God's people, pay a tax to Caesar who we don't even recognize as a legitimate authority over us? And so there were some Jews that thought this was uh, a bad idea to do this. And there had been some previous revolts against this tax. But also there were some that uh, maybe didn't think it was such a bad idea. And so what they were trying to do was trap Jesus. If he said, well, no, we shouldn't pay the tax, then the Roman government and authorities would see him as somewhat of a revolutionary and somewhat of a rebellious person. And they would seize him and solve the problem for the Pharisees and take him away. But if he said, no, let's not pay the, or, or yes, let's pay the tax, he would be put at odds with many of the Jewish people. Because many of the leaders at this time felt that to be Jewish meant that you refused to pay this tax. Because not only was this a tax to an illegitimate government in the eyes of the Jewish people, but this coin that was used to pay the tax had the emperor's picture on there. And it said, the son of the divine Augustus. And so it was in some ways blasphemous for the Jewish people to even have this graven image of someone claiming to be God upon this coin. And so the idea here is that they trap Jesus in this situation. So if he says yes, then he's going to be in trouble with this group. If he says no, he's going to be in trouble with this group. And either way, it will help us out because the groups can get mad at him and we won't have to deal with him. But Jesus, being the Son of God, being divine, and being able to answer more wisely than anyone else, 
simply asked them to bring the coin to him. So they bring the coin to him, which was equivalent to a day's wages, and they, he simply asked the question of, whose picture is on this coin? And they say, it's Caesar's. And he simply says, give Caesar's what is his. His picture is on the, is on the coin, so give it back to him. But render unto God what is his. So in this, he's saying that you may not agree with the Roman government. You may not agree with their ruling of Jerusalem. But the reality is, is that according to Romans, that this government is established by God. And you must submit to their governing authorities. So pay your taxes. But then the way he closes it, he says, and to God the things that are God. So he's implying here that what has the image of Caesar is this coin. But what bears the image of man? It is us. Or what bears the image of God? It is us. As we think about Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man and woman in our own image. So Jesus is saying, give the money to Caesar's. Because it's got his picture on it. It bears his image. But what bears God's image is you. So give your money to Caesar. But give your, give your lives to God. As we unpack this situation for our current uh, times today, we think about how Jesus refuses to identify the kingdom of God with any type of political movement. As we look at our current political situation in our country, the church is in a very dangerous position. Because as you hear things on news and as you hear people talking you see the merging of Christianity and one political party. Specifically, for the most part, the Republican Party. And it's very important to understand that when we ask the question, well, is Jesus a Republican? The answer is no, but He's not a Democrat either. And he's saying these things are not what the kingdom of God is about. It doesn't mean that your Christian theology shouldn't influence your politics, but what it, this is what it does mean. And sometimes we have the temptation to say, well, you're a Christian. You say, well, you know, I voted for George Bush. He's an evangelical. So, yes, I'm a Christian. I, I, I'm a Republican, so I'm a Christian. Or, or I hold to, I'm, I'm pro-life, so yes, I'm a Christian. Or I vote Republican, so I'm a Christian. Or I watch Fox News, so I'm a Christian. So all these things that, that we subconsciously identify with a Christian. And so when you hear someone say, well, I don't watch Fox. I watch MSNBC. The first impression that some people have is, like, well, how can that person be a Christian? Or did that person, you voted for Barack Obama? Don't you know that Christians vote for Republicans? And Jesus is simply saying here, don't fall into that trap. That political affiliation is not the cornerstone of true religion. So being a Republican or being a Democrat or voting a, a particular uh, party line or having a particular opinion on a moral issue does not make you a Christian or not a Christian. That it's not the sum of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Whether your opinion is to pay this tax or not pay this tax, then that's not the core and the cornerstone of true religion. So the temptation for us in this political atmosphere is to shrink Christianity to a certain circle or box and say, if you are a Christian, if you're a true Christian who truly loves Jesus, then you will vote this certain way. Or you will support this candidate. 
Or you will have this opinion on this political issue. When in fact, you're drawing boundaries around the gospel that the Bible does not draw. And this is part of what Jesus is saying here. That these Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to reduce what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God to Jesus' opinion on a poll tax. And they're asking the wrong questions. So you may have great political views that, that you think line up with the Bible. But if Jesus is not the cornerstone, those views are irrelevant. And they mean nothing. Because they have no bearing on your righteous standing before God. So you can be the most passionate pro-life person there is. But being pro-life is not the cornerstone of true religion. Rendering to God your life because it bears God's image is the cornerstone of true religion. So we see in this first part that political affiliation is not the cornerstone of true religion. The second thing in the next passage we see is that speculative theological questions is not the cornerstone of true religion. So what we see here in this next passage is that the Sadducees come up and ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. Now it's important to understand here that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two different religious groups. And they had many things that separated them, but one of the things that did separate them was that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe that there would be an afterlife. But they're trying to trick Jesus, and they ask him this question. Say, look here, Jesus. You know, the Old Testament talks about that if a woman is married to someone, and she doesn't have children, and her husband dies, then it's the brother's responsibility to come and to marry that woman so that, that she will have offspring that will be represented from her, from her former husband. And they give this crazy hypothetical situation and say there's a situation of seven brothers and they say what if the first brother dies and she doesn't have any children and the next brother dies and and he didn't have any children with her and this happens seven times so this woman is married seven times to seven different brothers so they ask this question of say okay jesus in verse 23 in the resurrection when they rise again whose wife will she be for she the seven she had as a wife so he simply asked this question, look Jesus, now these, this family would be following the Old Testament laws by doing this and, and making sure that this woman is taken care of. And so she would have been married seven different times. So in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Well, what's funny is that the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. But they're trying to trick Jesus and to trap Him, giving the, the persona of being smart. And theologically educated. And knowing the Bible because you have these tricky questions that you can ask. But Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy. And He says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, you... Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. 
So you have the Sadducees asking this question. If you're a bystander, you may be thinking, wow, these are such spiritual men. They're asking these great theological questions. And I don't know the answer to that. They must study God's Word all day long to be able to have these questions that are so uh, complex and, and, and deep. So some people may think that they are these super spiritual people who know God's Word. But Jesus calls their bluff. It says the reality is you don't know God's Word. Because if you knew God's Word, you would know that there is no giving of marriage in heaven. It will be like angels. And he says, furthermore, you deny what God's Word is teaching. Being that you deny the resurrection. Of saying that God is the God of the living. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead. If He's the God of the living and He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... That means that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though they died earthly, they live today. And they live with Christ because of their faith in God. I had a professor at Southeastern that used to say that he loves it when people ask him questions, but they always asked him the wrong questions. He never got the questions that he wanted to get. And he said, for example, you know, people uh, would ask me, well... How, who did Adam and Eve's sons marry? He said, the way I would respond to them would say, I would say, with well, a better question is, what color were their eyes? Meaning that those are equally irrelevant questions. The Bible doesn't answer every question in life. There are many questions that are left unanswered. But it asks and answers the questions that are foundational to our lives. Just knowing who Adam and Eve's children married have any bearing on my life today? It doesn't. I'm fine not knowing. I assume they married their sisters. There's really no other option. (laughs) But when we think about what questions do or does the Bible answer... Most people are asking four fundamental questions, whether you know it or not. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What went wrong? And what's the remedy? When you look at every religion in the world, every culture in the world, and you start unpacking things, those are the questions that are at the heart of people. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What went wrong? And what is the remedy? And the Bible answers all four of those questions in a cohesive and comprehensive way. Where do we come from? We came from God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made man and woman in His image. We bear His image and we are to live for Him because of that. Why are we here? We're here to worship God, to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him. Because we bear His image. Because He made us. He has the right to demand of us our love and devotion. So if you answer that first question with anything other than God, then the next three questions are irrelevant. Because if God didn't make us, if we just evolved here, then there is no meaning to life. And nothing went wrong. Because there's no basis to say what's good and evil without the concept of God. And you don't need a remedy because nothing went wrong. 
But when we answer that first question of saying, how did we get here? God made us. And He made us for His glory, to worship Him and to serve Him. And what went wrong is sin. Sin went wrong. I got Time Magazine uh, in the mail yesterday, and I haven't read the article, but it's a very uh, uh, interesting title. And it's basically taking some of the recent stories of the past week where men have been unfaithful to their wives and asking the question of why does this happen? Now, I I don't know, I haven't read the article, so I don't know the answer that the author gives. But I'm assuming, because it's Time Magazine, that the answer is not going to be because we're sinful human beings who rebel against the commandments of God. And we are born with a sin nature. But that is the answer to our problems. It's not the government's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It is my fault. And it is your fault. Because we are sinners who have rebelled and transgressed against God's Word. So all of our problems can be traced back to the fact that we stand as transgressors. That we stand as covenant breakers before God. And when the Scripture talks about the remedy, it's clear that the remedy is Christ. If the problem is sin, then the solution is Christ. That on the cross, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous. He bore the wrath of God on my behalf and on behalf of all His people that we may be reconciled and brought back to Him. So, as we think about this passage, as a pastor I get questions all the time. Some of them are great questions and some of them are questions that are kind of like the Sadducees' questions here. It gives the perception initially of someone who is really interested in theological things. But they're asking the wrong questions. So this morning, just because you may think of some really great questions that can stump your pastor or stump your Sunday school teacher, don't be like the Sadducees. Are you asking the right questions? Are you using these kind of crazy off-the-wall questions to provide a a cover and a screen for the reality that there is no spiritual death in your heart. For the reality that Christ the cornerstone is not present in your life. Are you asking the right questions? The last thing we see is that embracing the cornerstone is the cornerstone of true religion. What do we see here? We see another question in verses 28 through 34. Here, we'll read, start reading in verse 28. It says that one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? Now this is a good question, particularly in the Jewish mind, because in the book of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are 613 commandments. 613. Now that's a lot of commandments to keep track of. So it's a good question, a logical question, saying, well, Jesus, there's 613 commandments there. Can you sum them up for us? If there was one that I need to follow, what is that? And so Jesus answers in verse 29. He says, the most important one is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And the second one is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Verse 32. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. Isn't that funny? Someone telling Jesus, Yeah, you're right. He said, You have truly said that. That he is one and there is no other besides him. And verse 33. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. I think verse 33 is the key to understanding this whole passage. Where he, the scribe, upon hearing Jesus' answer, he puts in his own words and just says, Jesus, you're right. To love God with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. We're simply saying that you have these burnt offerings and sacrifices which were commanded by God, but simply making the observation that you can do all these things. You can follow them to the T. You can bring the exactly the right bull, the right calf, the right lamb, and you can do everything correct. Simply saying these things ultimately are meaningless if there is no connection to God. If there is no understanding of why you are doing these things. So when we back up and look at political issues, when we back up and look at theological questions, yes, I want you to be allow the Bible to inform your political views. Yes, I want you to be asking good, deep theological questions. But those of themselves are like meaningless burnt offerings and sacrifices if Christ is not the cornerstone. If those are meant as a way and a means to righteousness or are means to, to right Christian living, then they're going in the wrong direction. But if they're coming out of an overflow of a love for the Creator and a love for Christ, then they're great. But they're not the cornerstone. So this morning as we look at this passage, are you far from the kingdom? What a great thing to hear from Jesus saying, you are not far from the kingdom. Meaning that that you're on the right track. You've got it. You've got it. In the opening parable, the nation of Israel for the most part rejected Christ as the cornerstone. But in this last passage, Jesus shows the way to embrace Christ as the cornerstone. Meaning you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And you love your neighbor as yourself. The same concept of what he said when those asked about the taxes. Render to God what bears His image. We bear His image. And we render to God what is His by loving Him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. So are you far from the kingdom this morning? Do you embrace Christ as the cornerstone? And is that the cornerstone of your faith? Or has Satan deceived you into thinking just because you vote a certain way or you have a certain view that's in agreement with the evangelical majority on certain moral and political issues, that that makes you okay, that you're safe with God? Or just because you're able to come up with really great questions 
that that means you're getting close to the kingdom of God. But in reality, Jesus would say to you what He said to the Sadducees, that you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So how far are you from the kingdom of God? If Christ is not the cornerstone, if love for God and a joy to follow in His commandments and in His word is not the cornerstone, then you are far from the kingdom of God. But if Christ is the cornerstone, if He is the love of your heart, if it's delighting to you to follow in His commands, if you've tasted of Him and seen that He is good and you delight to follow His word, then you are not far from the kingdom. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.